0: Welcome to Catch the Fire London Podcast. We hope as you listen to this message that you will encounter God's transforming presence. So Lord, I thank you for for Dan. I thank you for my husband who so diligently loves you and looks to you. And Lord, I just ask that you would just come and pour yourself upon him, that as he releases your word, that he has been um, dialoguing with you, God, that you just come and pour out your spirit upon it and that the word would become flesh within us and that we would see, we would know and we would know of your your greatness, God, that we would be able to digest it and it would become part of us, God. And we ask that you would bless him in abundance for where he has listened to your heartbeat. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you. We do things a little bit differently this morning. Um, But I just wanted to just add an endorsement behind what Heather was just sharing. Um, One of the key verses that has been part of this church for a very long time is James 1.27 that says, True religion is this, to love the orphan and widow out of their distress. And now, Kira is not a literal orphan, but she has had needs to place herself into the care of somebody who's not her natural mother, but is absolutely gifted and absolutely anointed to be a mother in her life. And so as a church, when we get opportunities to love on those who fit in those categories, and that is just the perfect expression of God's love to the world. The other thing that really excites me with this is that... Um, I don't know if you guys will remember, but Kira is also neurodiverse. And so um, for her to do this and activate in partnership with the responsibility that's on her life is actually also a really big growth step, isn't it, as well for her to learn her own independence as well. And so we really want to celebrate that and get behind her and believe that God can do a thing and establish a thing in her life. And what better way to do that than to sow into her, the love of your life, into her life and see her atmosphere shift as she goes off to university. It may be those seeds come into fruit, and that's what we're going to preach about a little bit today. But to mix things up a bit, I've asked these guys to stay and play. And that's not very like me to do this. I'm usually a bit more of a kind of like activator than this kind of stuff. But I really felt the Lord, Lord shared a few things. And one of the things he shared for Andrew as well. And so I'm going to actually mix things up a little bit. And I'm going to kind of upset potentially the front three rows in the middle here. But I'm actually going to ask you guys to get rid of the chairs in this section. You can find another seat. But also, I want to just invite you, if you're sitting in a chair right now and actually you feel like the Lord has been ministering to your soul already this morning, um, then just come and find a bit of floor. It can be anywhere, as long as it's not in a place where I can stand on you. I've already done that to Baggy once today. Um, but we're just going to mess up the space a little bit. And so, I want to encourage you, if the Lord starts speaking to you or has already started speaking to you, then I just saw this, this space on the floor being a place for you to meet with Him. And so... As we move into ministry and this preach is going to be ministry, it may be a little bit uncomfortable for some of you, but I just encourage you, come to the floor and get on your face with him. And so if God's been moving in your life this morning, I just felt like he wants to meet with you because this morning is about you. Um Adam, I'm just going to ask for the keys and violin to be down ever so slightly because I can feel myself starting to shout. Um, what I felt like the Lord took me to was in the... Um, last week, Ashley was talking about Saul and David. And there's this beautiful moment in scriptures where Saul is troubled, isn't he? And David plays his heart and it ministers to his soul. And sometimes when we change things in church, when we mix things up, when we do random moments like this, some of our souls start to get a little bit troubled. We'll be like, I, oh, I don't know if I like this. I don't like it being different. Or I don't like it when I can't sit on my seat that I've sat on every single week. So that, you know, that's a very Christian thing, isn't it? We have our seat, we like to have our territory. I was joking with Amy when I arrived this morning because she was sat at the front where I like to put my bag and I was like, how dare you? And I was joking. But, you know, this morning is an opportunity for our souls to be ministered to. We're starting a new series. And this first week is titled, Everyone Has a Part to Play in God's Story. And so before we do anything, I want you to understand something. The momentum of history, of the creator God, of the story of the earth and the heavens being knitted together is behind you for your life in this very moment. You have momentum, intention and love behind you. God loved you so much in his heart and in his mind that he saw it fit and good to create you for such a time as this. And we're going to talk about some people in the bible and they're really amazing people and we're going to talk about stories today but what i want you to understand is that you have a story you have a calling you have a purpose that it's people like me and you who became the heroes in the bible not because they were particularly anything special in man's eyes but because god saw something in them and created them for a purpose and so today even if you don't take anything else away take this that everyone has a part to play in God's story. Every one of you. And so I want to encourage you, if at any point you feel like you just need to get on your face and weep, then do it. That's what this space is for. If you want to just sit in his presence, that's what this place is for. If you completely block me out and just listen to the Father's voice pouring out adoration upon you, then I'm so okay with that. But if you start to get uncomfortable and your soul starts to get a little bit out of place, then just let the worship flow over you and let your soul be at peace so that you can engage what God is saying today. Amen? Amen. Some of you agree. Others of you will get there. Just listen to the worship. <laughs> I didn't plan this verse, but the first one I want to start off with is this, in Timothy. 2 Timothy 1, verse 3 to 7. So I'm going to give Tanya a second to find it. Well done. I'm in the New King James today. I thank God, who I serve, with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. As without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers, night and day. Greatly designed to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. I want to read this over you right now. I just think this is Dan or Ashley or Stu or Chloe or anyone you would call a leader in your life. I want you just to let this wash over you as being a statement from us to you right now. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers, night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. And let that wash over you first and foremost. And then let's let's look at that. Imagine this being God saying this over you. I, the Father, And Jesus, without ceasing, remember you in our prayers night and day. We greatly desire to see you being mindful of your tears, filled with joy and love over you. And in verse 5 says this, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is also in you. Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Some translations translate that as stir up the gift within you through the laying on of hands. And first and foremost, this is a little bit of a self-help verse. Because I think sometimes we come to church in need of someone else's hands. Sometimes we come to church in need of encouragement in hearing other people's stories and other people's testimonies and other people's breakthrough. Sometimes we come to church with our needs first and foremost when actually Paul, what Paul is teaching Timothy here is that you have a history of faith, you have a destiny of faith and you can stir up that faith within you through the laying on of your hands in the name of Jesus. And so when you feel like, oh, I'm not good enough, oh, I'm not great enough, oh, I'm too small, too fat, too tall, too whatever, lay the hand on your heart. And just say, God, would you stir up your gift that is within me? And as he stirs up his gift, stuff starts to happen. The words of doubt, the words of destruction would, would cease and truth starts to come forth. The gift that's within you is the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the stand beside, the, the one who speaks truth to your heart and your soul. And so when you feel wayward, when you feel knocked back and forth by the waves of this life, when you feel drawn into the swirl of a storm in this life, as you lay hands on yourself you start to see that it's not about you anyway, it's about him that is within you. And as that rises up and bubbles up, then you start to have confidence in whom God says you are, not in who you or the world think you are. So many ministry moments would be resolved if we simply just stood on our own two feet with Jesus and recognized what his place within us is sufficient for a lot of our needs. Now that doesn't mean there's not a time for ministry. not not a time for being lifted up but you don't always need someone who you perceive to be better than you to raise up your arms because the danger of that is that you start to rely on your perception of others to be the breakthrough in your life you don't need me you don't need the ministry team you don't need ashley you don't need anybody to be the one who lays hands on you you need the holy spirit And the same Holy Spirit that's within me is the same as within you. Now there's times when encouragement is important and being lifted out of the miry clay and having your feet set up on a rock is very important. But also let's never forget that that is the role of the Holy Spirit, not the ministry team to do. And so today I'm here to remind you that you are an important part of God's story. But you can only be as important as you allow yourself to be. I can't make you believe you're important. The ministry team can't make you believe you're important. You can have all the inner healing under the sun and have all the godly beliefs and all the stuff to go along. But if you do not adopt it to yourself and believe in you and believe in the you that Christ deemed worthy of dying for, then nothing's going to change. I've done it myself and I've seen it too many times where people go through deep ministry and they get their hands laid on and they get honest and they get vulnerable and they get weak before people and hands laid on and then two weeks later, they're back in the same thing again. And they're like, well, inner healing doesn't work. Well, that person had issues when they prayed for me. Well, you know, maybe, maybe I'm going to become a cessationist because, you know, it's not working for me, this whole God moves the day thing. So I'm going I'm to doubt that stuff rather than actually choosing life. But before you can step into any of that stuff, you have to first of all believe that you are worthy, that Ashley Caleb's just over there. You can believe that Caleb's just over there as well, but that was a side point. And so everyone has a part to play in God's story. I mean, the hardest one to believe is you, You're yourself. Do you believe that you have a part to play in God's story? I think sometimes we believe we're we're cannon fodder for God's story. If you don't get what that phrase means, it literally, it comes from a very bizarre point in history where warfare was becoming um, kind of gunpowder based, and you'd have traditional warfare that was based on volume in numbers, confronted with cannons that didn't need numbers because they were firing giant balls of lead at people, which were very destructive. And so you'd have basically the peasantry in the army would be made up as the first ranks who were thrown in because they were the invaluable ones, thrown into warfare so that the cannons could exhaust themselves and their ammunition on those that didn't matter so that when the ones that did matter came along, they could go through and see the victory. And and we've adopted human mindsets into spiritual dynamics where we're like, okay, it's all right, I'm I'm just going to be one of the cannon fodder. I'm going to be one of the little ones in God's kingdom. I'm going to be one who can, you know, I'm just going to be there. I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to be serving. I'm going to go where my leader tells me to go. I'm going to get battered and beaten up by life, but, you know, I'm not particularly special, so it's okay. I'll take the hit. And that's not any part of God's kingdom, any part of God's desire. He doesn't do his kingdom quantitatively. He does it individually. Every one of us is his kingdom, Every one of us is princes and princesses in his kingdom. Every one of us has the same rights, the same access, the same spirit, the same abundance over us. Every one of us has the same birthright. We are all the firstborn. We are all the main inheritor. We have all put ourselves through Christ Jesus in that position of his goodness and grace. So who are you to say that you're just a small little cannon fodder in the kingdom? You don't get the right to do that. You don't get the the ability to define who you are when God is involved. And so we're looking at some people, and we're going to look a bit at Joseph today, but actually looking at the context behind Joseph. I'm going to start with genealogies. I know often people skip those bits in the Bible, but they're fascinating. It's also fascinating if you look at the genealogies of Genesis. You start adding up the, the times. You know there's a few articles online, but it's really quite accurate to figuring out how old the earth is and how long the gap was between creation and the flood and then flood to Jesus and then Jesus to now. We're, biblically, we're like maybe give or take five to ten years on accuracy, which is nuts when you think about thousands of years. And the reason why it's give or take is because it says things like Noah lived to 600 before the flood and then da-da-da. And we don't know whether he was 602 months or 612 months. We don't know whether it was those months. So you start adding up those on average and you get about a five-year give or take. But actually there's this incredible thing in Genesis where you get listings of the ages and people are living like years years and years and years and years and having children. And there's a few things that's very fascinating if you look at the genealogies in Genesis. Number one is that from Eve to Sarah, there's no females mentioned. You only hear that he had some other children or he had daughters and sons. And, but you see these moments where it's just like this person had this person. They lived until 800 years old. And then they had this person. And they lived until da-da-da. And it just goes on like this. But someone caught my attention. Enosh. How many of you know who Enosh is? Yeah, some of you? Okay, good. I'll check with you later if you're being honest or just doing that thing in church. Where you put your hand up and like, yeah, I've heard Enosh. Not Enoch. I'm not saying it weirdly. Enosh. And Enosh was, I think, fifth generation after Adam. And it's very interesting because it says of Enosh this. It says, Enosh was born and men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, jokingly, you could suggest that maybe Enosh was so bad that he caused people to call upon the name of the Lord. No, I'm joking. But... There's this nature where you've got the fall and Adam and then you've got Cain and Abel and all the stuff that went wrong there. And then you've got this line where it's just like this person had this person, this person had this person. And then this random guy, Enosh, it just was felt that it was relevant enough to say that and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Isn't that extraordinary? We don't hear about his life We don't hear about who he was. All we get is a name and a response to the world around him. When the genealogies of this day and age are written in the book of life, are you needing God to write Andrew, a father, a leader, and all the accomplishments that Andrew did, or simply that Andrew and men started to call upon the name of the Lord? see Enosh on one level is fairly insignificant you could read past him very easily you could skip past that a bit you could be like well it's just genealogies it's relevant to me or we could learn something in this moment that everyone has a part to play in God's plan and this random guy in the beginning of the world caused an effect on the world to start pushing towards God isn't that extraordinary you could be like Enosh The reason I said about women, it's really interesting that actually there's something about insignificance I want to come into today. And this is not to say, and if you don't believe me, listen to my Mother's Day preach. But it's not to say that women are insignificant. However, the unfortunate thing with biblical times is that they were less important culturally. And then that means that therefore when there is women mentioned in genealogies, you've got to pick your ears up a little bit and realize there's something really important happening here. Because these are people that God is choosing to highlight that man would not. People that God is choosing to label that man would not. You know, one example of that is when you're talking about the genealogies of Jesus, it lists the name Rahab. And what do we know about Rahab? She was a prostitute. She was in the promised land, living within Jericho. She was, um, some people would define it as the runner of a bar. Other people would translate it as a prostitute. But she was not even someone of the, of the kingdom of Israel. And yet she was someone who God chose to highlight, not only in His word as someone who' faithful, but highlight as somebody who was an ancestor of Jesus. God does things very back to front. We, we believe that it is by our righteousness, our holiness, our self, perception, our way we manage ourselves that we are chosen and called. We, we come in our, our mental Sunday best before God, and we say, "God pick me. Let me make it easy for you. I'm so amazing." I'm so incredible. You know, you think about Saul and the way he was picked. And I think God was really generous when he actually said to Samuel, that there's this guy from Benjamin that I'm going to be calling and highlighting to you. But, you know, the context of Saul becoming king was a mess. Because it was the people of Israel saying, we want a king who can judge us. failing to see the fact that their leader was God, who was leading them with judgment and righteousness. And they said, no, we don't want unseen. We don't want pillar of fire by day and cloud by night and all that kind of stuff. We don't want that stuff. We want a man. We want somebody who can look great and be strong and be exciting. And that's who Saul was. He was, you know, you read about the measure of who he was, and he was described as everything a king should be. He was, the t- he was taller by a whole head, they describe him as. He was a big man, a great warrior, a man of passion, a man of, of leadership that men would flock to. But there was cost to the nation of Israel as a result. Cause it said that he will take your daughters and he will turn them into um, perfumers for his um, court. He will, he will take 10% of your livestock, 10% of your crops. He will position himself as though he is God because he will take a tithe from you. And they're like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, give us that king. We want that king. And then we have this moment where Saul starts to realize that his kingdom is coming to an end. And, and this heart cry comes out of Saul of being like, don't take my kingdom from me. Don't take my train set from me. Don't take my, my things from me. And there's this really beautiful parallel you find in, in the Bible between David and Saul. where There's this moment where Saul, Samuel comes to him and says, look, you know what? God has anointed another. And Saul loses the plot. He's like, no, 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 don't take my castle, my crown from me. Don't take my things from me. Don't take my toys from me. Don't take the, my beloved followers from me and all the things I get. The same happens to David. What does he say? He gets on his knees in worship and says, do not take your spirit from me, God. And, and I think sometimes when, when we look at the kind of people that man chooses, we're looking at people who will be entitled People will claim things for themselves. People will put themselves in positions of God. People will not think about the benefit of others but only their own and potentially put other people in the worst place even though they seem charismatic and exciting and good. Whereas if you look at the people that God chooses, man, is it a motley crew of messed up people when God chooses them. You read through the Bible, goodness me, you've got Moses, he murdered a guy. You know that? We like to think of the guy who was like, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. And he's like, yes, I'm coming before you. And the the guy who went nose to nose with God and was up the mountaintop when there was like fire and wind and his face shone so brightly that people had to put a veil over him. We like to think about that, Moses. But what about the guy who beat an Egyptian to death with his bare hands in his anger? How many of you would follow that guy? David. Goodness me. You know, if you, if you study David, and, you know, he's in the cave of Adalem, and the waifs and strays start coming to him, the disenfranchised, the, the broken, the, the weary, the, the ones who are no longer understanding what their destiny is. It's like, it's like the Old Testament version of Robin Hood. It's like all the laws come to him and find him in the cave. Uriah the Hittite being one of them. And you hear the stories of these incredible men who do doing crazy feats of strength in the name of God and under the anointing of God. Uriah, who's David's best friend, the guy who's ride or die with him, the guy who's with him through thick and thin. And then in, in a moment's decision, David says, I fancy your wife. I'm going to get rid of you. And that's God's anointed. I think God's got a different rule book when it comes to choosing people to us. I think God's got a different category, a different threshold for what's needed to be met when it comes to choosing people to us. Because I'm telling you, if you think you're not worthy of being chosen, read the Bible because you will find someone worse than you. Guaranteed. I made this joke at my wedding where I was like, well, these are the best men, so who's the worst man in the room? I mean, someone's got to be, right? Someone in the world has to be the worst person in the world. But even the worst person in the world... Is absolutely able to be chosen by God. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that crazy to think that even just the worst, like, think of the worst person in history you can possibly think of. The grace of God is sufficient for them. And that offends us. It offends our sense of justice and judgment. It offends our position of what is godly and good. But God is godly and good. In fact, God is God. And so if he chooses to go to the extent that he would do to release grace to the world, who are we to judge that rather than to say, God, I thank you that you haven't judged me either. Because he sees it all. He knows it all. There's no hierarchy to sin. There's no hierarchy to brokenness. There's no hierarchy to how bad you are. We're all sinners saved by grace. And grace is sufficient. So what does that mean? Think about how bad you are. No. I'm not asking for awareness of your brokenness and awareness of how terrible you are. I'm asking for awareness of who God says you are. Of the fact that God chooses you. God looks at you and says, you are worthy of my love, worthy of my grace, worthy of my adoration. You're worthy of a calling and a destiny. I have a plan for you. I have things... In- path for you to prosper you and uplift you when you make mistakes i don't care as long as you have a contrite heart and clear hand clean hands and a pure spirit and that you repent to me i have so much goodness for you that i just want you to get yourself out of the way and get on the path with me because i've got a big adventure for us to have together stop thinking less of yourself stop thinking that you're not deserving Stop thinking that you are not good enough. How dare you value the cross that lowly? Every time we don't think that we're good enough, we're saying the cross wasn't good enough. Every time we're saying that I'm, I'm dirty, I'm broken, I'm this, I'm that, we're re-crucifying Christ. Always saying, Jesus, you, you know, I know you were good and all, and I know you went to the cross willingly. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to define my worth in this moment, and it, it wasn't for me. He suffered extraordinary pain. It says in Isaiah that he was stripped beaten, broken, so that he no longer resembled a man. His destruction was extraordinary and cruel and brutal and demonic for you, for me, for us all. And we need to stop saying, Jesus, you needn't have bothered. We need to stop cheapening the power of his sacrifice. And we need to start believing that we are worth it. I feel like some of us, we just, we find ourselves in cycles I just need someone to love me then I'll be better you already have someone that loves you you already have everything you need in Christ Jesus so you don't need to go down that route Jesus, God, Holy Spirit and Father, they have intended for you in such a remarkable way that the mark that you will leave on this world may not be for you, it may be for generations to come, but the point is you need to trust him and believe him. Let's talk about Joseph because that's what we're meant to be doing. So we reach Abraham and Sarah, the first woman mentioned in the genealogies after Eve. And Abraham and Sarah have this incredible calling upon their lives to see their offspring outnumber the stars in the sky. It's incredible. And that's a separate story to go down. But then they have a child, Isaac. who marries Rebekah. And they have a son called Jacob. And Jacob later gets called Israel. And the offspring of Jacob become the Israelites. And this is a really important moment because this is where we discover the formation of the family of Israel and the 12 tribes that sit beneath him. If we could just pop up Genesis 35, verse 22 to 25. Ready? It says, Now the sons of Jacob were 12. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon. Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhar, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And this is really important for us to recognize in this moment is... Jacob, Israel, the formation of the people, God's chosen people, 12 sons, four mothers. And this is, this is massive, actually, when you think about this, is that, yes, cults were slightly different then, and having offspring to go forth and multiply and fill the earth was God's plan of their lives. Now, Jacob had two wives and then two maidservants, he had children with all of them, but it's fascinating to me that they're all mentioned in this moment. Because the 12 tribes of Israel are established out of the offspring of these four women. And in these four women, we find people who would have been insignificant, almost there just to exist as opportunities for childbirth. Particularly the maidservants who had literally no rights. They were sold almost into subhuman position of slavery, and yet they were used to birth tribes of Israel. God's chosen people. That's extraordinary because who were they? Who, how dare they on one level define themselves as anything important and yet their offspring are defined as children of israel i want you to understand something you're not a maidservant you're not a subhuman position you're not in a position of slavery where you have no rights no choices no nothing and god wants to use you how much more can he use you than establishing a tribe of israel for a maidservant An irrelevant an insignificant there is intention to everything written in the bible so God used servants because everyone has a part to play in God's story. You know, Joseph was not the eldest, not the most significant. In fact, he was quite low down the list. It says that Jacob loved him because he was born in his old age. So it's not even to do with anything that Joseph has done that makes him special to his father, other than the fact that he chose to be born. How much does a baby get to choose that? And yet we find Joseph, this this person who is anointed, called, positioned, who's insignificant in the household and yet is glorified in his purpose and starts hearing dreams and visions. And yet he becomes a ruler, a man of authority. But there's a journey there. how many of us, when we were thrown into the pit by our siblings in this weird negotiation that happens where they see Joseph coming from a long way off and his, his 11 brothers' response was to go, let's kill that guy. Such sibling rivalry and hatred. Let's kill, You know what we're going to do? We're going to kill him and then we're going to lie about it to our dad. And Reuben, the oldest, somehow being the most wise in that says maybe we shouldn't kill him but let's just get rid of him. And they throw him down a pit, fake his death, how many of us, if we were Joseph, and we'd been walking around in the favor of our position, wearing our special coat that our father had made for us with our calling ahead of us having these dreams about who we were going to be about how we were greater than our siblings and all this kind of stuff how many of us would walk around being like yeah come on I'm God's called I'm God's anointed I'm going to see the world change I'm going to go and shift mountains you know we've all been there we've had prophetic words where you know people stand there and be like I see you as a leader of leaders and we go yeah of course. yeah I know I know I know yeah I'm fully expecting of that word in my life because I know me and God says it, yeah, so now I am and da 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 and all that stuff and then the next day something goes wrong and we get thrown down a pit our brothers and sisters turn our, their backs upon us and try to kill us and try to destroy us. In the pit, what do you do about who you are? Do you allow the atmosphere and the situation you're in to define your worth and your value and your calling? Do you suddenly go, I'm in a pit. God, have you made me to be a leader of this pit? Do we start to bend the prophetic words in our lives to meet our context and be like, well, God, maybe, maybe those dreams were just about me misunderstanding maybe I ate too much cheese last night and I had a weird dream and now I'm in a pit and God I think you can move with me in the pit and so I'm going to embrace the suffering and I'm going to be contrite in my faith and I'm going to be in this pit but no no that's not the point we don't change God's voice to meet our context we don't doubt who he is because things suck in the moment we keep our focus on him We keep our eyes on him and we allow ourselves to be who he says we are in every context we're in, no matter how hard it is. When he's rescued out of the pit, does Joseph become a slave in his mentality? No, he keeps speaking the voice of God. When he's in a household and given an opportunity to make himself better through debauching himself in adultery, does he do it? No, he speaks the word of God. Does his context get worse? Yes. Does his conviction of who he is get stronger? Absolutely. The journey from the pit to the throne room where Pharaoh, one of the strongest leaders in the world at that time, who was likened to being a God, says, here's my throne, I trust you what an extraordinary position to be put in from the pit to being glorified by man to a position that people would see as godly or godlike to then sit in that place of influence and bring god there because god has realized something about joseph that has been proved is that joseph will listen to my voice Joseph will stand and be who I have said he will be. Joseph has embraced the identity I've placed within him. So I know he's trusted in this place because he will never put himself in idolatry. He'll never put himself in broken authority. He will never use his position to manipulate and destroy, but he will use it to bring life and abundance. And so I'm going to bring it. I'm going to fill the storehouses with grain in a time of famine. I'm going to fill the rivers with water in a time of drought. I'm going to make this nation that is not his own flourish so other nations from all around come to it begging for help because they see the anointing that's upon it because the man who was in the pit didn't doubt who he was, didn't doubt his future, didn't doubt his calling, but allow God to lead his steps, allow God to lead his ways, allow God to be the definer and the full stopper and the underlying liner and the capitalizer he allowed God to do it all so that when he was in the position of influence he recognized God put me here, God could take me away but as he's established me God what do you want to do next everyone has a part to play in God's story too many teachings have been said about we must decrease and become nothing and broken and aware of our unworthiness so that you can increase God But on the flip side, too many verses have been spoken and preachers have been given about, but we are deserving of his glory and that he needs us to move. And so we're going to stand as sons and daughters of God in utter confidence because he needs me. How entitled. How mismeasured and how entitled. God doesn't need you to tell him how to move, nor does he need you to get out of the way for him to move. What he needs is sons and daughters who turn their ear to him and listen and believe of what he says. Let the love flow from him into you and through you and out from you so that you never say, Here's Dan, aren't I a gift to you in the name of Jesus? But for people to say, I see the Father through Dan. I see Jesus through down. Because when the world testifies of the goodness of God in you, then he will flow through you. When Joseph was sat on the throne, he didn't welcome his brothers and say, Brothers, it's me, Joseph. Look how powerful I am. And sometimes we read this story as he was playing a game with them. But I think there's something about this. They needed to realize who he was on their own journey so they could recognize the glory of God flowing through him. You don't need to tell people who you are. You need to listen to whose you are. And then people will see him through you. Come on, why don't you say that? I am ready to listen to whose I am. So that people see him through me. Because Everyone has a part to play in God's story. Let's go back to the pit. How many times have you felt like you're in the pit and you despise the season you're in? The struggle, the pain, the torment, it's all real. It all hurts. There's a difference between being hurt and despising. When, when you're in the struggle, do you wait for the breakthrough or do you shout at the redeemer and say, where have you gone? The Lord said to me this last night. He said, if you despise the season you're in, you could be killing the very sprouts that could be a harvest in your life tomorrow. God is a harvester, a supernatural seed sower. He's the one who causes Trees to be in season in every season. His fruit is always there in abundance. When the evidence around us doesn't look fruitful, do we trample upon the sprouts that are trying to grow in our lives through our distraction, our despising, through our lack of self belief? Or do we get on our knees and cry out to the Lord and let the rain that's flowing from heaven flow through our eyes so that our tears? soak the ground so that those seeds and so those sprouts can germinate to full fruit there might be a season of weeping in your life, God will use that to grow, there might be a season of harvest in your life, God will use that to grow, God is in the business of growing you there's things in action in our lives that we simply do not understand, I'm going to finish with this, I think I shared this back at Christmas to talk about Jacob for a second. But Jacob, who was called Israel, when he was on his journey of traveling as a nomad, his first wife, Rachel, died during childbirth with Benjamin. And it says that there was a site that he, he built, built an altar to the Lord and dedicated it. And the site of that was Bethlehem. And on that site... And this is what the Lord said to me. He said, The sight of heartbreak for one of the patriarchs of Israel through birth would also host the birth of the restoration of Israel. You've got to read into subtleties of Scripture, but Jacob, Israel, his wife passing away, there's childbirth, there's a prophetic statement there. In the moment where we're seeing what we would perceive, perceive as robbery and destruction, Jacob lays an altar to the Lord and says, this is a place where God has provided. And then in that moment of prophetic statement, thousands of years, hundreds of years later, a birth is coming with the restoration of Israel. That isn't stuff that is done by accident. God doesn't go, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to use that later in my story. No, that's the intention of heaven. Bethlehem was also the birthplace of David, the location of his anointing as king of Israel and where his mighty men fetched water from a well for him from the cave of Adalam. David longed and thirsted after the well of Bethlehem. Jesus referred to himself as the living water. I want to premise to you today that like Jesus thirsted for the well of Bethlehem, we too should thirst. But after a well born in Bethlehem, the living water, Jesus, when we drink of him, we will never thirst. But also in our restoration, never will we have to experience the hardship of exile like David where that water is inaccessible. We need to stop looking at the situation around us and the context around us and saying we are in but instead going Jesus would you pour your living water out upon my life Jesus would you cause harvest to come in my life Jesus would you sustain me Jesus would you redeem me Jesus would you lift me up Jesus would you be Jesus 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 because if it's not his name that we're calling upon then we should have no business calling upon anything in our lives and so this is where we're going to land because the kids need to come out and I've said a lot of things and I've nearly spilled my water because I forgot it was there living water there we go <laughs> I want you to be able to come forward some of you already have but come forward come and join me at the front here it's going to be a bit messy it's going to be a bit different but we're going to take communion so I wonder if Andrew you can just run around and maybe someone else can help him as well we've got communion cups and here's, here's what's going to happen like I said at the start, I don't want you to become profoundly aware of how bad you are in order to know how much you need Him. But I want you to become profoundly aware of the fact that all you need is Him, but also He needs you. Because everyone has a part of playing God's story. What if the pain you're experiencing right now is going to become a prophetic thing that's going to lead to a breakthrough in 10, 20, 30, 40, 200 years? where someone's going to be sat right here where C.D. is weeping right now in Village Hall in a year's time. And there's going to be an altar in the Spirit built right now in this moment of pouring our heart towards Jesus. So there's going to be a harvest in the Spirit right here so that in a year's time when someone else kneels on this spot, they meet the provision of what was poured out in the Spirit in this moment. You don't know what God needs to do through you. All you know is that God wants to do something with you. And so we're going to take communion as we finish today. And then I'm going to just ask the guys to keep playing for a bit longer. And I'm just going to give you an opportunity today to get yourself in with him. In a greater level. Because there's no pit deep enough. There's no trial strong enough. There's no destruction absolute enough to stop the movement of the King of of Kings and the Lord of Lords that wants to come through your life. You can try really hard but you will not stop Him. Who can stop the Lord God Almighty? That beautiful rhetorical question we were singing earlier. If you didn't realise the answer already nobody now you can do a good effort at it but stop it stop with your small thinking stop with your lack of belief look let me tell you something some of you are thinking well it's alright for you Dan you've got it all together trust me I do not and have not had it all together in my life Ashley can verify ask her later but I've made a choice I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back to the doubt no turning back to the fear, no turning back to the slavery and the bondage, no turning back to the brokenness, no turning back to the lack of, no turning back to my opinion of myself, no turning back to the opinion of others, no turning back to the destructions in my life, but only focusing on the face of Jesus, the salvation, and the reward of his sacrifice upon my life, so that as I look at him, I can shine him to the world around me, so that when people see me, they can say, what, is that Dan Davidson? No way, he was a terrible guy, he, hurt me he caused me pain and look at the glory of god that's flowing through him what on earth is this glory that's upon him what on earth is this? he doesn't deserve that you know that's how you witness to the world they see his glory on you and they see the oxymoron of it because they know that you aren't worthy of it and yet he is glory and so you should all have your communion cup thingies if someone could chuck one towards me that'd be great And this is for you to do on your own with him. So I'm not going to lead you now to encourage you if you need to. If you haven't ever led yourself in communion before, then it's very simple. The bread symbolizes, or the wafer in this case, symbolizes the body of Jesus broken for you. That body was broken, it says, like I said earlier. It was shedded beyond human recognition. It was broken for you so that in this lifetime you can see breakthrough in your life. You know, the only requirement for the forgiveness of sins was the shedding of blood and so Jesus having his body torn to shreds his body broken the spear in his side the nails in his hands and feet the thorns upon his head the whips upon his back that was actually on one level not necessary because his blood brought our salvation his blood brought our forgiveness his blood brought us into everlasting, eternal life in his kingdom where we will no longer weep, we will no longer be hurting, we will no longer be sick because we'll be in heaven in his glory. His blood did that. He didn't need to go through all the extra trial. And yet he did. Why? Because he wanted you to be able to live in wholeness in this life. Every time you get hurt, his body was hurt. Every time you get sick, his body was sick. Every time you get trial, he went through trial that's the power of that bread that's the power of the broken body he didn't have to do it and a lot of Christians live in an atmosphere where we accept the dynamics of this world and the fallen nature of the earth and we reject his body and so that bread broken for you simply means this that he was broken so that you could be made whole Not once you reach heaven, now that is going to happen, but in this life, on this earth. And so, in your own way, thank him for that. Break that and eat it. And then the blood, the blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, to reconcile the temple model of sacrifice, for the spotless pure lamb to be brought, not just for the sins of one man, but for the sins of all men and women from past, present, and future, so that in the purest DNA, the shedding of that blood, we could be forgiven because we make mistakes, because we sin in varying degrees of sin, because we think wrong, we act wrong, we speak wrong, we do things wrong, we condemn we defile, we tear down he shed his blood every last drop so that we could be forgiven and so in your own time I encourage you to just take yourself on a journey of remembrance thanksgiving reformation, reconnection into him and let him speak to you. Just heard the lyrics of that song, and it is no longer I, but it is Christ who lives in me. And so, if it is Christ who lives in me, then I refuse to live small thinking, broken attitude, self-deprecating lifestyle. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Yet he chose me and he chose you. And so everybody has a story and a part to play in God's story. And that starts right now. And so in the most loving possible way, anything that doesn't add up to that, stop it. Stop it. When Caleb reaches out to touch the cooker that's hot, do I let him touch it and get burnt? No, I say, stop it right now. Sometimes he gets a little bit scared by the veracity of my telling him. But that's not aggression. The veracity matches the danger in the situation. And I think some of you need to hear us stop it right now. Because you're in danger of stopping him moving your life. And so in the name of Jesus, I bless you to believe in you and Christ who lives in you. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Amen.